Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So hello there and welcome back guys to another episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast, a show where we talk all of the latest news, gossip and events in the world of Formula One and we relay that back to you for your listening or viewing pleasure, depending of course on which platform you choose to follow us on. And guys, we've just not long finished the Imola Grand Prix, a lot of huge talking points coming away from that race, Max Verstappen putting together his first big marker of the season against his rival for 2022 so far, Charles Leclerc. How that's going to transpire over the course of the season, we'll have to wait and see, but I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how this new season will transpire. But in the meantime, before we go to Miami, which of course is the next venue for F1's 2022 season, I figured we'd fill this interlull period with a nice little F1 chat to a gentleman who's quite well renowned in the F1 journalism world and I'm very very excited to have him on. It's F1 journalist for the race, formerly Autosport as well, Mr Scott Mitchell. Scott, thank you so much for the benefit of our audio listeners joining us from your cupboard in your flat in Stockholm. How are you doing and uh, first of all can I say thanks very much for paying close attention to detail especially with the reverb. I know a lot of people that record podcasts really pay attention to that. So uh, first of all how are you doing? Yep, I'm all good, thank you. This is a, uh, I think I've recorded in this cupboard once before. The when um, I think I've done an episode of the Race F1 podcast from in here before. Um, but it reminds me of, uh, I remember at the start of the, uh, at the start of the pandemic, I started listening to a lot more podcasts. And because I, when I was growing up, I was a massive fan of the show Scrubs. And I started watch, uh, listening to the Scrubs Rewatch uh, podcast. Um, and in that, uh, Donald Faison is always recording from a cupboard and constantly getting mocked for it. And I never, ever understood quite why he was recording from a cupboard until I got into a little bit more of the details of recording audio and understood just how brilliant a small room filled with clothes is for audio quality. So because I've got some DIY work going on in my flat at the moment and I can't actually record from my desk because I don't really have one, 
as I sit here speaking. I've dragged a chair and a stepladder into my cupboard. Uh, I've got a lovely amount of damping around me, uh, from mainly from my fiance's work clothes. These aren't actually my dresses. Um, so yeah, I'm here, ready to go. Uh, thank you very much for for having me. It's nice to be on a podcast that's not my own. It feels a little bit like cheating, but I'm sure we're going to have a bit of fun. Oh, absolutely. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm fairly familiar with that trick. I think one of the first things. I did when I first started this podcast about two years ago was trying to find the right environment to record and I used to record in an old flat near the Isle of Dogs in Greenwich and the reverb was terrible it was just echoey all over the place and for any of you that have followed this podcast since its inception will know exactly what I'm talking about it was so echoey and the audio quality wasn't great to the point where I just had to bite the bullet and invest a little bit of money buy a condenser mic and all of that to the point where it sounds as good as it does today and hopefully that will continue to improve so Scott if I need any help with uh, improving my audio I'm definitely going to be coming to you and asking for some tips on how to best record in the cupboard but uh, yeah, absolutely no problem I've, I'm, an ex- I'm, I'm an expert now so I've spent all of 15 minutes setting this up I got all of the answers <laughs> And I bet it probably didn't cost you a penny to set that up either. You don't necessarily need to invest to have a good podcast. No, exactly. I have actually got some uh, uh, the padding that used to line my um, office walls uh, is actually ironically in this cupboard with me, but it is right at the back. I can literally see it now and it's part, It's under a pile of clothes. So it's actually doing about 0% of the soundproofing work at the moment. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, as much as I'd love to talk DIY with you, Scott, I'm sure a lot of our listeners will obviously want us to get on with Formula One and obviously talk about a bit about yourself. Now, of course, as I've mentioned already, working with the race, obviously you used to work with Autosport as well, one of F1's leading journalists, uh, particularly in the UK. Um, I suppose the best thing I can ask you to sort of as an icebreaker question, something that I introduced recently with my last guest was um, about a, a sort of bit of a fantasy F1 thing. So I'm going to throw it at you and see what you come back with. Um, if I was to give you any F1 car from history and let you drive it around any circuit in the world, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an F1 circuit. It can be any motorsport circuit that you can in theory drive an F1 car on. And I gave you a whole day and you knew everything about this car. You didn't have to learn it or anything like that. What would you drive? And where would you like to drive it? I think I would, uh, I don't have to hesitate, drive the 2004 BAR. And Ooh. I'd probably do it around modern Silverstone because uh, I just, I know so I know modern Silverstone quite well. I actually did uh, I, in a very, very, very short-lived circuit racing career of my own. I made my debut on the Silverstone Grand Prix circuit, supporting a British GT round in the uh, Janetta Racing Drivers Club. So in a little Janetta G40 with road tyres on. Um, and I, I just absolutely love Silverstone. It's, it's, an, it's a mega track. It's really good fun to drive. It's nice and wide as well. So you can make a few mistakes and get away with it, which I think I'd need. Um, and the, the 04, did I say 04 or 06 BAR? Cause I definitely meant to say the 2004. Yeah. It's the 04. Wasn't that the one that, um, Oh, wasn't it the one that they got suspended for a few races because they no were... that was the that was the 05 car the 04 ah. car was the 04 car was in Jensen's breakout season in in 2004 with his first podiums and a brilliant brilliant season I, I grew up a, a, a big uh, Jensen button fan and I just loved everything about that car I thought it was um I thought it was really really nice to look at I thought it sat, I thought the Honda engine sounded amazing had a cool livery on it it was the it was the the only car that was sort of consistently fighting the Ferrari so it's got a real sort of special place in my heart driven by a driver that I grew up idolizing when I was a kid so yeah if I had the opportunity to drive that I think that would be that would absolutely be bananas yeah I must admit I was a big fan 
of BAR, sort of went in that particular era of BAR, when it sort of first came around, when they had the uh, the two liveries, when Jack Villeneuve was driving, and they weren't allowed to obviously use that after testing, which was a bit of a shame, because that was actually quite uh, interesting and eye-catching, but uh, it was definitely that era of BAR, and obviously Honda as a partnership that did grow on me. Um, speaking of that era, Scott, the early 2000s, was that sort of your introduction to F1, or were you following it a bit before that? No, that was definitely when it sort of kicked off. Um, so the first, the first real F1 memory I have is probably the 2001 season. But that's may I'd, I was I'd have been nine years old. But that's mainly because I remember my brother and I had the season review video. Or were we on to DVDs? Then I sound so old. Oh my god! Oh, I, I remember, remember. Yeah, because I was. Just, <laughs> I, can't I, I think we're we were sort on of. DVDs. <laughs> yeah, I think we're sort of similar age because I remember. Do you remember on the old F1 games on the old PlayStation Two, two thousand one, two thousand two? They used to have a DVD as part of that with the season review for the season. I, that's where I remember seeing one from. I don't know if they actually released DVDs. Yeah. Um, <laughs> separately, but that's my earliest memory of it. So they did exist. I think the answer yeah. to that. I just remember the O one season. Really, that's like that's the one that stands out i've got loads of i can picture so much from that season um so that was really sort of the starting point but i don't think i really really started following it until 2003 2004 i remember when i remember 03 when when button started to assert himself at, at bar alongside Jacques villeneuve i remember that was that was when i started to really get into it because i started uh i started karting when i was eight or nine years old so um i was I was racing more and more myself. And as I raced more, I got more interested in Formula One because before that I'd grown up on British Rallycross and a bit of British touring cars because my dad, um, my dad was a British Rallycross driver um, or apes. Well, I don't think he, he didn't ever do the British Rallycross championship, but he was a Rallycross driver. He raced at Lydon Hill all the time. I, my family house is like half an hour from Lydon Hill. Um, so I was going to Lydon watching Rallycross most we most times it was there during a season uh and then my dad would always come back from the autosport international show with the um, btcc vhs season reviews and they were definitely videotapes because i still have them um and i watched every season from 94 to 98 because for some reason my dad didn't have the season reviews from before or after that so i grew up on a healthy mix of british rallycross and super touring in the BTCC era. And it wasn't until sort of 03, 04 that I I absolutely still loved and continue to this day to love Rallycross and BTCC. But in 03, 04 is when Formula One started to become a, a bigger part of my life. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds great. Uh, it's obviously no doubt that you're obviously going to inevitably come uh, something, well, someone involved in motorsport in some capacity. So obviously you chose F1 journalism. I mean, I'm quite intrigued to know about your karting history because... I myself also was a carter at that sort of age, sort of when you get into it. Um, how far did you get in, in terms of your journey to motorsport? Uh, I, not very, not very far. Um, certainly not in the category, the relevant categories. If you want to then sort of really make a career career out of racing, um, I think like in hindsight, um, in 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 hindsight, just definitely definitely didn't have the money or the discipline or the focus to to sort of make anything off out of being a racing driver but um my dad and I talk every now and again about how much fun it was really sort of reflecting at 
punching above our weight a little bit because I did, I, I got the highest level I got to was the British Championships, but it was in a sort of lesser category. I was, I was, I was racing TKM, TKM four stroke rather than the two stroke category, which is the one that um, a lot of drivers have come through. I think like guys, I think, I think like Anthony Davidson and I think uh, it's, it, TKM two stroke was the category that Lewis Hamilton chose not to do and went and did Formula Yamaha instead, I think in the 1990s. Um, so the TKM was always really good and the four stroke category was awesome, but it was just, you, it was more controlled. You couldn't play with the engines or carburetors or anything like that. You couldn't really do anything to, to really make the difference mechanically. So it was always, a it, it, it just wasn't the place to go to if you had a load of money to spend and wanted to do it professionally, but it was a great place to go on a budget, which is why we did it, but there were still people that were spending a load of money and taking it really seriously. So the the best I ever did, I I got a couple of podiums at British Championship level, and I think my best finish was like eighth in the British Championship or something like that. Um, but it was it it was it was really special. I I did it. I did. I was racing until I was probably sixteen. Um, by which point I realised like it wasn't going to turn into anything serious. I'd worked out that I was sort of okay, but I was like nothing special, and I'm certainly not a lost talent or or anything like that but it was uh it gave me it gave me a lot of great grounding as a, as as a person but also as yeah as someone who who loved motorsport um and it was very much one of those situations of I'm not quite good enough to do this but I'd love to stay involved with it if I can so I think you're right it was probably inevitable that I was going to try and fashion some kind of career that kept me around <laughs> well i mean it, it's, it's an all too familiar story i mean i can relate to that i i did a lot of racing myself i don't think i ever got as far as um as tk to or anything like that in, in british it was mostly more regional um sort of london essex area and I totally relate. You know, it always seems to come down to money, or at least that's the excuse I tell myself. It was never a talent thing or anything. You know, in an, in an ideal world, Scott, uh, you and I find rich benefactors or sponsors, and then you've got us competing for the world championship rather than Lewis and Max are sitting at home recording podcasts and writing about us. So, uh, yeah, exactly. I think that's exactly how it would have gone if the Racing Steps Foundation had started just a few years earlier. That's mm. what I always say to myself. You'd be. The Oliver Rowlands and the Jake Dennis's and the Oliver Turvies of this world, they 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 they're very lucky. They're very lucky that that scheme <laughs> didn't come along a bit earlier and snap me up first. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been any money left for the rest of them. That's it. Absolutely right. I couldn't agree with you more on that one. I'm sure many people like us will probably have similar thoughts to that one. But of course, here we are talking about our favourite thing, motorsport or anything with wheels on it that you can race. But um, I, I'm quite. I, I can, as I said, I'm actually quite impressed to be able to sort of relate to uh, an F1 journalist like yourself on a lot of those things, um, sort of upbringing and stuff. I mean, I grew up watching Formula One as early as sort of the mid 90s when I was about four or five years old. And my earliest memory was uh, the Canadian Grand Prix in 95, where Jean Alesi won for Ferrari. And that's kind of what stemmed my interest in Ferrari as well, just the, the colour that. Um, the particular Ferrari itself, which wasn't amazing, or at least if you ask Michael Schumacher, you probably thought better of it than Jean Alesi and Gerhard Berger did. But um, it was just such a crazy race. And this was, in my opinion, Schumacher's strongest season as a driver in 95. I don't think many people appreciate how good he was that year. Um, most people gloss over the early 2000s. But from then on, it, it, I was just hooked. And, um, you know, just following F1 growing up. So it's always nice to reminisce about that particular era of racing um, compared to how it is right now. I mean, would you say that there was an era of racing? Um, that obviously, I imagine you've probably gone back and looked at eras of racing b before the early 2000s. Um, how do they compare to today? Are you a fan of the, are you a nostalgic in that regard? Or are you more of a fan of modern F1? 
and I, 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 I like a. I see the merits in a lot of different eras of, of Formula One, but I've I've never really been so wedded to one that I've sort of held one above any other. Like ma- mainly because I see a lot of similarities from them. Like, I remember, I remember when I was at work experience uh, at Autosport when I was still at university, I got shunted into their archive uh, for a couple of days because they just ran out of things to get me to do, so they just sent me off into the archive. I think I was. I think my job was to like type up Nigel Roebuck's first six or seven 1982 Grand Prix reports for because they were doing a 1982 retro edition in the summer, and they wanted to republish some of the race reports, but they had they didn't have it digitized. So I was the lucky one who had got to go through and type up thousands and thousands of words. And at that point, I honestly I knew very very I knew all the world champions, but I knew very little about the details of any sort of season really before probably '94. Um, just because obviously in my time Schumacher was such a big deal, I knew all about his history, and by extension of his history, I knew about the history of his '94 title and the Damon Hill feud and and all of that. But I remember going into loads of detail obviously learning about the 1982 season and thinking oh my god this sounds amazing like that that was that that to me I think because I had so much exposure to it in such a short intense period of time doing this job I just fell in love for some reason with the 82 season so that's one that always stands out um I think I I think there's something about the 80s that is a bit more relatable to now I feel like that's when it's obviously not modern f1 anymore it's 40 years ago which is a crazy thing to say but the 50s 60s and even the 70s just almost feel like this whole other thing before f1 was you know properly professional before it was this global phenomenon uh before it was a bit safer this 50s 60s and 70s just feel like something out of a film rather than the history books so 80s is a bit more relatable. So I think it's sort of 80s onwards that I really sort of gel with. And I find there's some stuff about the 90s that are absolutely incredibly cool. Um, and actually, I've read a couple of books by Richard Williams recently that have made me really fascinated about the pre-war Grand Prix years in the 1930s in particular, the 20s and the 30s. Learning a lot about that has been really interesting because it's something that I did not know anything about. Um, so I just find I just find stories, drivers, personalities, things that were going on championship narratives i find all of those things fascinating and none of those to me none of those topics are tied to an era i don't it doesn't matter to me whether you've got this flame belching turbo killing 1980s monster or a high nose mid 1990s car or or something like that it really doesn't it really doesn't matter to me as long as it's got a good story i'll care an awful lot about it which is why i absolutely loved the 2021 season for example and why i was still able to enjoy other parts of modern f1 i've been a full-time formula one journalist only since 2018 so i got a couple of years or three years of absolute brutal hamilton mercedes domination but even with those seasons there were loads of stories there weekend to weekend there were things going on so i it I have a relatively high bar for something really capturing my attention. But the good thing is, is that Formula One is quite often capable of clearing that bar. Yeah, I, I think I can totally understand that because, and, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, obviously I'm a big fan of the race and obviously the Bring Back V10s podcast. I really, really enjoy that. And I think one of the elements of that particular podcast that I enjoy is the fact that you can dive into 
F1 stories of yesteryear, even stuff that you had no idea of how it all transpired. For example, um, I can't remember what episode it was, but it was a story of sort of Eddie Irvine negotiating his contract with Ferrari when he was being approached by a team like Ligier and, and some really crazy stories um, regarding that, that I had no idea of how that even transpired. So I can totally understand that when you sort of dive into the F1 archives, there are so many stories around the paddock that you wouldn't see uh, romanticised about or glamorised on TV if you were just following the broadcast race to race. And I must admit, it definitely opens up a whole new world of motorsport too. It kind of makes you feel a bit more... Not so intimate's the right word, but you sort of understand the sort of day-to-day with the drivers. I think we take for granted in the modern world, in an age like social media, there's almost every facet of a driver, as much as they like to keep hidden, that we just see right in front of us and we don't really appreciate how it used to be. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff from, um, especially a pre-social media time, where it's all uh, it's all so much more mysterious and intriguing. And uh, I remember being told a story of... Um, I'm going to be, I'm going to open myself up to so much criticism now uh, because I can't remember my years um, exactly. But the, uh, what I, I'm pretty, I'm pretty 100% sure it's the, um, the Villeneuve Arnoux fight at Dijon, the famous one where they're basically knocking, um, you know, 10 barrels of, you know, what out of each other at every other corner, basically. And it's obviously like an absolute infamous fight. It's one of the most famous pieces of footage from Formula One history. But I remember speaking to someone who was working as a journalist there at the time. And what's crazy is you read these reports afterwards that these people have written and they didn't know that that was going on because at the time it wasn't like there were loads of TV screens in the media centre and everyone could see it. So the only time they actually saw them was when they were going past on the fast start finish straight. They didn't see what the viewers at home were seeing because the TV screen wasn't there for them to look at. So they had to piece it together afterwards. And then it's like, well, hang on a second. You sort of described this crazy, amazing battle that you didn't see. And it's just, it's, and it's not because they're, they're not being dishonest or unprofessional or anything like that. Like that is just how, how it worked. You had to piece stuff together blind basically. And you had to go out and find information from the drivers themselves. You had to have a pally relationship, basically, with the drivers to be able to just catch them, have a chat whenever. Same with team managers, team bosses, whoever it was, sponsors, tyre fitters, whoever you could get to speak to you. And there was just this, there was, there was this different way of the fan connecting to the driver because you were so reliant on the journalist effectively having a relationship with a driver that then enabled you to read about what that driver was like in, let's say, a copy of Autosport or Motorsport Magazine or, or, or Motoring News, whatever it was at the time. And then obviously the more and more we've become dependent on the internet and social media, we have a direct relationship with drivers and, and even teams now. So it's just, it's really interesting actually how, just how different and how, uh, I guess, immersive being a Formula One fan is these days that like you, you almost like can't miss anything. And I, part of me thinks it, for me, that would take the magic away if I was still just a fan now, but I totally understand why for other people, you're just falling over each other for, for info. So it's an absolute goldmine. 
Yeah, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I believe it was, wasn't it 79, the French Grand Prix? I think it was 79. Yeah, just to sort of, 79. Just to help spare the blushes a little bit. I mean, it's easily <laughs> for, easily forgiven. I mean, <laughs> you've got to know so much about the F1 world to write about it. It's your uh, day job, so totally understandable. But, um, I mean, you were just mentioning there, Scott, about obviously how the, your relationship with the sport in that regard has changed because it becomes so much more immersive and there's, a, there's so much more of a reliance on your info and those relationships with drivers or team personnel that you may have in order to produce a story that us as fans can sort of get such easy access to almost as if like you know that that's our source to understand the, uh, the livelihood not just for the f1 drivers and team principals but yourself um has hasn't that changed has sorry i should probably rephrase that has that changed quite a lot in the last few years owing to um, or, or sort of your relationship with F1 and social media in that regard, has that caused a huge change in the last few years owing to what we've seen in particularly in 2021, how that championship was going back and forth? Because that must have created quite um, a difficult period for some people to write a story about someone without a reaction uh, one way or the other. Well, I don't like being on social media now. The 2021 season has... Uh, yeah, it, it has poisoned uh, social media for me, especially. Like, I mainly use Twitter for work, and like, I don't really go on there for for personal use any uh, anymore because because it is my professional account. I'm just if you write about a certain topic, there is just the instant abuse, basically, and it is hard to it is hard to ignore it, especially because it's like it's basically a window into what it must have been like to be a football journalist ever since Twitter was invented. Like that's how it was for me in 2021. It was like a explosion of all the nastiness of football Twitter into F1 Twitter, which I, I, I really didn't like. But that said, um, there are elements of it where I really do just try to ignore that side of things and focus on the good stuff because there is also some amazing stuff that happens on, on social media. I am absolutely an enormous fan of some of the user generated stuff that appears on, on Twitter. Um, technical threads um people digging into telemetry uh just genuine debates about what's gone on um i remember also uh, after abu dhabi last year um i'm 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 blanking I'm, i feel really bad I'm, I'm blanking on their names but um there were um there are two or three women i think that hosted a, a twitter space that were talking about basically why uh, why black people had respond reacted so badly to what happened in Abu Dhabi and why they felt so cheated and pained by what they'd seen Lewis Hamilton go through in Abu Dhabi. And I listened to that. It was it was it was a really, really long space, but I think I listened to it for about 50 minutes or an hour. And I don't even I definitely didn't listen, wasn't able to listen to the whole thing. Because I remember being in Gatwick Airport coming to fly back to Sweden. And I just remember thinking like this is mad. This this is this just would not have been possible. Like a few well spaces in particular are obviously a new thing on on twitter but just that whole community element of having that you wouldn't be able to stumble upon that sort of thing without social media so there are pros and cons plus i i always um i might be leaving myself ripe for the picking here but i i always leave my dms open on twitter because i don't never know if for example like yourself wanting to get in touch um uh, to to be generous enough to invite me onto this podcast if it's someone at university who wants some advice um whatever like i i want to be open because there were a lot of people who opened doors for me when i was younger and i was looking for advice and stuff like that so i i certainly see a lot of upsides to it 
But after last year, it, it just has become harder to sort of linger on there. I don't like looking for stuff. I don't like being tagged in stuff. I get a bit of anxiety whenever I'm roped into certain conversations now because as much as um, the Lewis Hamilton fans some or some Lewis Hamilton fans accuse me of being anti-Lewis and racist and pro-Max Verstappen last year, I had as many, if not more, Max Verstappen fans saying that I was pro-British, pro-Lewis, all of this, anti-Max. And it was just like, or... When I think one of them's in the wrong, I say that person's in the wrong. And when I think they're in the right, I say that person's in the right. And I might just be calling it as I see it with absolutely no bias. But obviously, sometimes just there's some people on social media, nuances uh, is missed, shall we say. Yeah, and and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I myself, I don't really tweet much too often. If anything, I more often tweet from the DNF1 account. And, and even then, it's not necessarily opinion pieces. It's mostly just looking through technical threads and learning this and learning that and stuff that I've done research on and just reporting that back to people that follow us. And and even then, particularly on this podcast, I remember there was an episode where we talked about the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix last season where Lewis and Max obviously came together. And I made a suggestion that, yes, of course, on... Uh, at the surface, it looks like Max brake checks Lewis, but there's a lot more going on than just simply Max stamps on the brakes and then, you know, forces Lewis to go into the back of him and stuff like that. From that comment alone, the reaction from so many different people that were either pro Lewis or pro Max, and it was crazy. And I'm just reading through it and I'm just a regular independent podcast. And part of me is looking at this like, this is kind of uncomfortable. I don't think I want to keep reading through these comments. And, and I can only imagine from uh, you know, the perspective of, of a journalist like yourself that has such a big following and obviously, you know, writes pieces all the time for their day job, how difficult that must be to keep finding the motivation into a new season, especially after what happened in Abu Dhabi and how difficult that must have been to just say, okay, we have to put that one into the F1 archives. Of course, people will reference it in time to time in the same way that they might have done with Schumacher Hill in Adelaide 94, if social media was around then and just carry on next season. And hopefully that sort of thing goes away, but it may not ever really happen if that makes sense yeah well i i think to be honest the best example is everyone always well, well not everyone but one of the most common sort of what ifs i always sort of heard as a sort of light-hearted thing was oh could you imagine if um twitter had been around for 1989 and pros versus center oh, and God, i was like yeah, yeah. Well, well now we have the answer like last year the hamilton verstappen thing last year was exactly like what the reaction would have been if Twitter had been around in 89 and 90 and just the reaction of from in, 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 in Suzuka the first year and then Senna's retaliation a year later. And that, that is exactly, you could basically change the names and change the specific nature of a couple of the insults, but by and large, you'd get basically exactly that level of sort of toxicity. That's, that's, that's what it was like. And it's a shame because that it comes from, generally that comes from a place of passion but i think the difference is that there are now no longer just fans of f1 who then become fans of a certain driver when they're because formula one's becoming so much more mainstream and so much more popular which is a mega thing that's absolutely awesome you then naturally have people come in who are specifically fans of a certain driver and then that that just creates a kind of allegiance that previously i think has been quite rare in formula one because you don't I feel like you had, I feel like you have a, a bigger or sorry, a smaller percentage now that are just F1 fans. And they might still be the overall majority that, that, you know, don't have a real allegiance, but just love Formula One. But it's shrunk. It's definitely not as big as it was before, because now I think you just have people that just 
fans of individual drivers and that way sometimes madness lies yeah i absolutely agree with you i mean there's always been that uh, fan of a driver versus fan of a team kind of battle and i definitely feel it's more lean towards the uh towards the latter um in recent years where there's a huge amount of passion for a specific driver um i mean there's only been rare cases of that in the past i, I remember obviously growing up obviously people were schumacher fans or or particularly a, an alonso fan where the crowd at Catalonia would change the colour of their shirt depending on what team Fernando is driving for. And he still happens today. Um, I mean, if when Fernando does decide to call it a day for good, I don't know if that pattern's going to carry on for Carlos. Um, I mean, I'd like to think he'd stay in the red colours for a little while longer, but hopefully we'll see. Uh, that sort of goes down. But I totally get it. And, and I think as a Ferrari fan, and I don't mind admitting this on the show, I think regular listeners of the show will know that I'm a Ferrari fan, but I like to try and keep an open mind, especially this season when it's quite easy for me to get excited more than it would have been when I first started. I think I think uh, Bahrain was the first race since I started this podcast. I was actually able to report on a Ferrari win. So, <laughs> and, and it completely went past me. I'm thinking, has it really been two years? Because obviously Singapore 2019 or, or yeah, was the last one when, when Vettel won, funny enough. I think I remember rightly. But yeah, it, it's just crazy. And obviously as a fan of a team, sometimes you don't have biases or likes or even dislikes towards certain drivers, especially a team like Ferrari, because growing up through the years, you look at a rival driver, there's a good chance in a few years' time, if they stay good, they're probably going to be driving for Ferrari one day. So it's not like I can say, oh, I don't like Max Verstappen or, for example, or or better yet, Alonso or Vettel growing up because they eventually did drive for Ferrari. So it's, it's kind of hard in my mind to get around that concept that you can just follow a driver from team to team to team. It's almost like football. You wouldn't follow a footballer from one team to another. You'd support a team. Um, and then, or some people might follow the footballer, but you support a team. And if that player leaves your team, he's completely dead to you or he's not relevant anymore. So it's quite interesting to sort of get that perspective from some fans that follow drivers, particularly. It's definitely a modern thing. Um, whether or not, you know, that the, some people can control their passions or not. And I know I'm lending myself open here to a, a response and that is a different thing. But of course, I think last year was a, was a, amazing example of how that can sort of boil over in the in the worst way possible hopefully we won't see anything like that again but it's f1 you just never really know with that sort of thing yeah exactly um i think uh i think it was a slightly unique set of circumstances last year so maybe um maybe it really is just a one-time occurrence but i guess we'll find out if mercedes gets act together and if um lewis starts fighting for for wins and championships before he, he calls it quits, then I'm sure we'll see a reprisal of Lewis versus Max. And then um, who knows, maybe maybe that'll be Twitter's opportunity to redeem itself. <laughs> it's almost, it's got like a Rocky kind of film a vibe to it. It's like, you know, it'd be roles reversal and then Lewis gets his own back, although perhaps not as controversial, but we'll see, we'll see. There's always hope in that uh, Mercedes will get back to the front again. When that will be, we'll have to find out. Um, on, on the subject of F1 journalism, because we never really talk... We haven't talked too much about how that sort of stemmed. I know you mentioned your internship at Autosport. Um, is that where it all began for you? Or in terms of, uh, did you always have a passion for F1 journalism after you finished karting? Um, well, no, not specifically F1 journalism. Um, I am, uh, my training, uh, I went to university and studied as a, as a journalist. So I'm a professionally trained and qualified journalist uh, as a to put it bluntly, like a, as, as a real journalist, but I chose not to be a real journalist and go and pretend and be a Formula One journalist in the end, because uh, while while I was uh, while I was still racing, I was um, 
I was doing little things like um, I was writing my own race reports like for myself. But then I started to write race reports like my local kart club and I quite liked it. I always liked I always liked writing stuff at school. Um, so this reporting sort of angle uh, was quite fun. And then I think that it just became a little bit of a right. How do I turn this interest into, I guess, a career? Because I'm getting to that point now where apparently I need to decide what I want to do with the rest of my life. Um, so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'll give being a journalist a go. I started doing work experience at my local newspaper, uh, really enjoyed it. So then I based my A-levels around, right, okay, I want to study at university and be a journalist. So then I did like history, English language, literature, etc. A lot of essay-based stuff. Uh, A-level, got into the University of Kent to study journalism. Um, and I did three years there, everything from uh, from shorthand to media law, uh, all of this. So I, I've, I've got my shorthand qualification. I use shorthand pretty much every day. Um, and yeah, I, my it was all geared towards going and being a journalist for probably a local paper, but like maybe ideally one day being at somewhere like The Guardian. That was always sort of the, the, the dream. And I remember being asked at my interview uh, to get into the university, what would my dream job be? And I said, sports editor of The Guardian, because I did still want to specialise in sport eventually, but I was just prepared to do like again real journalism before that um <coughs> sorry and then um while i was at while i was at university um i needed to go and arrange some work experience and i thought oh well i'll, I'll try and get some work experience at autosport um because i thought i just thought it'd be quite fun and i didn't and i did some other stuff as well i did some work experience at the independent um for example and i kept going back to my local paper and all of that and I went to university, uh, sorry, I went to Watersport for a week's work experience and um, it was fine. But I, you know, I got, like I said, I got chucked into the archive for a couple of days. I got forgotten about it. It wasn't, it wasn't great. And I remember finishing that being quite disappointed. And then the rest, that was in my second year of uni. And then the rest of the year passed. And I, again, like all my focus was on being a real journalist, blah, blah, blah. But then I came back for my third year and I was like, oh, I really don't like how that week at Autosport went. And I don't want it. I don't want to leave it like that. Uh, I feel like I didn't give the best account of myself and I didn't get enough out of it. So I asked to go back. And when I went back the second time, it was a lot more structured. They could see I was serious. I did a bunch of other stuff there. Um, so that went really well. At the same time in my third year, uh, I did a doc I made a documentary for my dissertation, which was all about um, the plight of young, aspiring British motorsport drivers. So I actually, funnily enough, I joked about the RSF earlier, the Racing Steps Foundation. I actually did a lot of work with them. I went and I remember filming with James Collado, Jack Harvey and Jake Dennis, uh, as well as some other drivers like Alexander Sims. Derek Warwick gave me a load of time. He let me go and film up at the BRDC at Silverstone, which was amazing. And I just, the more I got into it, the more I realized I was so passionate about motorsport. And like there was, I, I felt like there was something serious to do journalism wise with motorsport. So that's what I threw. I thought, I just thought, ah, I'm just going to go absolutely all in on this. This is my, the rest of uni is all, the rest of my final year is all about becoming a motorsport journalist. Because when I graduate, I'll have all my qualifications and 
if it doesn't work out and motorsport journalism isn't a thing, then I can always try and be a local reporter somewhere. Or I can always try and get a job on a national newspaper or, or something like that. But I might only get this one chance now to get in early. And I made a good impression at Autosport. So by the time I graduated, I was first in line at Autosport. Like if there was a entry-level job open, I was going to be one that was pushed towards it as long as I did a good job. And that's what happened. Two or three months after I graduated, um, I got uh, I got a job at Autosport as the editorial assistant on the magazine. And yeah, it's just spiralled from there, really. Worked my way up on the magazine side. I started off doing junior single-seaters and British Touring Car Championship support races. My first full season at Autosport as a journalist, I covered George Russell winning the BRDC Formula 4 title. Um, and yeah, I... I I ended up as their British Touring Car Championship correspondent for a bit. I was a McLaren Autosport BRDC Award judge. I then got into Formula E, which was my first international championship. But I'd done the Le Mans 24 Hours two or three times as well. I did everything I could there. Every every opportunity I got, I threw myself at it. Uh, it was a, a an enormous, enormous privilege to work for Autosport. Um, and to get to that point where they offered me the job as a Formula One reporter there was just like, that was unbelievable. I, and it was beyond my wildest dreams. It, it happened way sooner than I thought it ever would. Um, and it, it justified everything that I've just spent way too long talking about because all of a sudden I was like, Oh my God, this is an actual job and I've got it. Um, and yeah, a few years later, I'm still working in Formula One. I still seem to be conning a living as a Formula One journalist. So I'm quite glad I made that gamble now in my final year of university. And not to not to say I couldn't have been happy as a journalist on a local paper or something like that, but um, to have to have really followed what I wanted to do and for it to have paid off is just I I couldn't have imagined that when I was um, 17, 18 and trying to work out what the hell I'm doing with my life. <laughs> well, if it helps you feel any better, Scott, not to fanboy too much, but you're absolutely conning nobody. <laughs> in terms of like honestly I, I mean I've been reading your articles for a while particularly with the race and obviously autosport as well and I must say I really really enjoy your work um and it, it's always great to get that insight you know from journalists like yourself about F1 and it opens up a whole new world to us mortal fans if you like that uh, don't really understand certain nuances and certain certain stories that go like for example obviously your coverage on Honda and their return to F1 and obviously the success story that it, for Red Bull and their relationship and how critical that has been um you wouldn't have imagined how that all unfolded such a short time with Red Bull in the way that it just failed in such a bad way with McLaren when it seems that you'd expect it to go the other way around and you know, if it wasn't for your work, you wouldn't understand, uh, and obviously other journalists as well, but you wouldn't understand the sort of inside story and certain things that you just expect. For example, if when Honda come back, everyone just expected them to be successful with McLaren, but there was never the why. There was always old Fernando moaning about a GP2 engine, or they were a few years behind on development, and obviously the people that were upset in the paddock. You don't understand those, the inside stories, without the great work of journalists like yourself. So you're absolutely conning nobody, Scott, if you ask me. <laughs> but uh, I might just be an isolated opinion, but I, I very much doubt it. No, it's okay. No, I really appreciate that. Thank you. The main thing is like, um, because I see what I see what Formula One does to some people, and like there are some journalists who have been around for a really long time and are just awesome people and they still do an amazing job but there are also some who journalists that have been there for a long time and journalists that have only been there for a year or two that they they 
they're there for themselves in a way like they're, they're there enjoying themselves uh and that's sort of the primary purpose whereas for me i do enjoy being there don't get me wrong it's obviously an immense privilege and it's great fun sometimes but it's 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 a job first and foremost i am very very lucky to be there and i know that there are a lot of people who would want to be there so my job is to do the best job i can or my priority is to do the best job i can and justify the fact that it's i i just find it ludicrous that that is my job and i i want to justify every day that i'm there and it's always about it's never about oh i i i think this therefore i'm going to write about this or oh i care about this so therefore they i'm going to tell the reader what they should care about i'm always just trying to think of like what what would they care about what do they seem to care about like what's going to be most interesting to them and it, it sounds super obvious to put the reader first or when we're making a youtube video put the put the viewer first um but it's just not it's just desperately trying to find the right balance between not being so arrogant that you can say like ah i know what you're like you'll watch this but it's just trying to like i guess learn from all the responses you've got from other stuff you know articles or videos that have done particularly well topics that people seem to be interested in and just using yourself as a bit of a reference wherever it's relevant and being like well when i found this out it was massively fascinating so therefore i'm going to write about it and i just think that's a bit different to having an, an agenda as a journalist and just being like oh, i've been offended by this therefore i'm going to sledge this person or this team or i really like this race so i'm going to be defensive about this race at the expense of another one or even there are journalists that do have favorite drivers and teams and therefore they're slightly biased in their reporting towards them like i don't think you should ever have your personal opinion inform the way you work like that but if your personal opinion is just purely oh my god that information is amazing what a great story that is i need to write that so then you go out and you find all the other information and stuff that you need to make that story possible because you want to bring that story to as many people outside of the paddock as as you can i think that needs to be the number one priority uh all the time um it's a little bit more difficult to do now because obviously the more popular f1 gets the broader everyone's interest is and you're never going to write a piece that everyone agrees with or everyone likes but all you can try and do is obviously um get it right as many times as possible and then eventually if someone doesn't like something hopefully you write something that that they'll enjoy at a different time I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, it almost begs me to ask a question, Scott, um, on that last point. Have you ever actually written a piece that you either thought, this is going to be amazing, I can't wait to put this out, and then it doesn't quite get that reaction, or perhaps the opposite reaction, where you might not be happy about something, but you've, you know, you've got a media deadline, you submit it, and then all of a sudden it turns out to be so much better than you expected it to be? Uh, they've... I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but it definitely happens sometimes where you think, oh, this is going to be something that everyone cares about and they don't, um, Where, which is always like, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting lesson because then it's like, okay, well, how do I avoid this mistake in the future? Or uh, is there potentially something um, where, where, where it was like, well, we had to report that. And if people didn't care, fair enough, but, like for example, a good actually a good example is the Lewis Hamilton involvement in that bid to buy Chelsea Football Club. In my experience, just F one and football is just an absolute no go. Like no, like it, it, for some reason, it just everything I've ever written that combines the two just it kills the story. Like there's no interest in it at all. 
But ultimately, when the most successful driver in Formula One history is putting even a nominal amount into a bid to buy one of the most successful football clubs in the world, like you have to report it. And you kind of know that no one's really going to care or like the audience is going to be limited, but you have to do it out of obligation. And then there have been other stuff where you're like, okay, well, I feel like interest has waned on this, but I'm going to report this sort of development in the story because I think it's the right thing to do. A good example being anything related to Porsche and Audi coming into Formula One, where you think, oh, everyone's going to be sick to death of this, rolling their eyes. I believe it when I see it and stuff like that. And then you run a story or publish a video on it and it just like it goes off like a rocket. And you're just like, oh, well, I guess there is still life in that in that horse. <laughs> so it, it's interesting. Sometimes you just sometimes stuff's just a hit and a miss. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, the Porsche and Audi stuff has actually been quite interesting for me. And it's something that I came to quite late because I was like you said, I was one of those fans is like, oh, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Or why are they coming in as engine suppliers? I want to see an actual team come into the sport. You know, they're big manufacturers in other racing series like, uh, you know, in WEC and Formula E, for example. You know, why wouldn't they just come in and make an F1 team? But over time, those you know, the story has become quite a lot more interesting, especially with their involvement. And uh, so it'll be interesting to see how that sort of plays out. And I think the coverage as well, it, it lends itself to being praised for, you know, how how to engage people in stories like that. I mean, you mentioned the Lewis Hamilton story as well, um, buying Chelsea Football Club. And I'm an Arsenal fan, so I looked at that immediately. I thought, okay, I, I get why Lewis is doing it, but it's a bit strange to buy into Chelsea. I thought it was an Arsenal fan. But it, the amount of money that he's committing to it, with, in, with all due respect, it is a lot of money. Um, it'd be nice to just have, you know, to do something like that. But it, it's not really a footballing reason behind it, or at least from what I understand. And so I can appreciate that for what it is, rather than to say, oh, well, Lewis is buying into a rival club, you know, boo Lewis, but it, obviously not. But um, I, I guess in hindsight, perhaps Salba, should have signed Lewis Hamilton about 10 years ago when they had that yeah. partnership with, Ch with Chelsea, for those of you that remember that one. And uh, maybe they would have got that one off the ground a little longer than just having the, the club badge on it for a bit over a year or something like that. Yeah, that was very, very short-lived. Um, that Just the very odd sight of a Formula One car driving around with a football crest on it. Just that that's one of those things that is just... In 10, even now, actually, it's probably quite a good one. But in 10 years' time, that'll absolutely be a picture where you'll show someone and be like, Remember this? <laughs> <laughs> it was around that time when everyone was sort of having a fantasy thing where you could have a, a racing series dedicated to being endorsed by football clubs. For some, for whatever reason, it was just uh, an, an and it never really got off the ground because I don't think oh, it was a serious super, thing. Super League, Super League that's Formula. The, yeah, that's yeah, the one. So yeah. you had uh, yeah. like Tottenham Hotspur did it, AS Monaco did it. I think you had like Galatasaray or Fenerbahce. Yeah, yeah. All of, all of these clubs were around European. It was like the a lot of Champions League clubs, mm. I think. A lot of like big European clubs, missing quite a few of the big obvious ones. But yeah, it was uh, that was quite Larry. Those cars were quite cool, but it just they never were, really, yeah. it never really caught on. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was one of those when I first saw it, I was like, oh, I can't believe this is real. This is something you'd expect to see on an Instagram post, like people come up with concept designs. You never expect it to actually happen, but uh, mm. there you go, seeing stranger things. Um, yeah. I know you've mentioned a lot already about how you got into journalism and and stuff like that, and that's obviously been really, really interesting. I, I'm kind of I feel like I have to ask this question, putting myself in a position of a 16, 17 year old right now that might be listening to this for whatever reason. And they might be curious to ask, what advice could you give them if they wanted to potentially pursue a career in F1 journalism to try or motorsport journalism in general, how to sort of make that reality? What, what advice would you give someone maybe to a 16 year old Scott Mitchell that was potentially thinking about this? Yeah, well, I, th I think um, I, I think I did make the right decision when I when I was that age. I was lucky that I 
had an idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, so the main the main advice I would give would be from my experience, <clears throat> because that is the only thing I can speak from. And that is try and find a course at college or university that is uh, NCTJ accredited. I say that now thinking, actually, because it's been a long time since I did that qualification, it's very possible that the actual name of the qualification has changed. Um, but when I, when, for me, it was the National uh, Council for the Training of Journalists. Um, you can always find lots of information on a website called the Press Gazette, which is basically like the, like the industry news um, source, basically. So there's always stuff, uh, stuff on, on, on there and lots of educational resources on there. But if you can find the NCTJ or whatever its modern equivalent is, I'm sorry that I can't think of it right now if, the, if it has changed. Go, go down that route because whether it's a full university course or whether you can find something that's like a distance course or a college course that's a bit shorter, you will get at the very least the basic skills you need to be a journalist. And those basic skills are transferable, whatever kind of writing you want to get into. So longer term, go for that. If you're at school still, uh, write as much as you can, embrace a lot of essay-based subjects, learn how to make arguments, craft arguments, write... Um, write live on weekends or you know follow a grand prix follow go go to as many live events as possible even if it's national racing national racing is a there's so much national racing there's all there should always be a circuit relatively near if you've got your own car that obviously helps but go to races go to sporting events go to whatever you can go to to actually get an understanding of following something live as it happens making notes crafting reports crafting analysis pieces that kind of thing just like write as much as you can um and just try and work out what skills you think you'll need and the best places to 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 sort of hone those skills that's the main thing i can ask and don't expect to just walk in and cover f1 don't expect to just go straight in at the top be an f1 journalist i i started off in grassroots motorsport initially even when i was a baby going to rallycross races but obviously as a professional as well covering club events at pembrey and cadwell park and then working my way up into national championships full-on british championships then getting into european and world stuff and i'm all the better for it as a person and a professional for having to work that way and sort of work my way up so never think that you're too big for something um never but and never believe that what you're doing is like the the absolute most important thing in 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 the world in, in, in that sense of what i mean is like be open to criticism be open to constructive feedback um work you know work at, work as if what you're doing really really matters but just always have that sense of perspective that there is always something a bit bigger out there otherwise you just get a bit arrogant with, with, with what you're doing so I'm not sure if that, any of that advice actually makes any kind of coherent sense, but um, that's why I generally stick to writing rather than doing anything in the broadcast world. <laughs> no, that's fair enough. I have seen some journalists sort of cross over into both, and I imagine that they probably have plenty of stories to tell about the sort of the parallels and, and, and those that are completely different to just doing the, the writing more than anything else. Um, before we move on to F1 today, uh, there's one more question I do want to ask you, uh, perhaps something a bit more positive to reminisce on. Um, is there a favourite Grand Prix that you've covered and it doesn't necessarily have to be formula one it could be throughout your your entire journalistic career is there a favorite race that you've covered uh one that stands out um 
I think it was 2016, but I am going to have to just very, very quickly check just to make sure. But it was a Le Mans 24 hours that I covered. And it was the year that uh, the Toyota broke down um, basically at the start of the final lap. I think it was 2016. I am just doing a really, really. Oh, uh, was that Nakajima check. driving it that year? Yes, it was. Yeah, it was. So it's I remember 2016. This, yeah. And the reason that's my favorite is for two reasons. One, because it was just like the most extraordinary finish that you could ever imagine 24 hours. And it had been sort of fairly straightforward, I think, up until then. Um, and it was just a, it was, I think that was my third Le Mans uh, that I'd worked for Autosport. And it was just crazy. It was just a glorious reminder of how demanding that race is. But the other reason was because that was also the race. I really hope I haven't butchered this in my memory. I think that was the race that uh, Frederick Sose competed in the LMP2 class. And he was the, uh, I'm going to, again, I'm really risking myself being wrong here. I think the quadruple amputee. Yes, I think I think. So, I remember, yeah. So that was just this incredible human story and just that car making it to the finish and and him making it to the finish was just amazing so you just had this crazy mix of just this professional competitive unbelievable finish and just this incredibly strong emotional human story as well just combined together plus the fact that Le Mans is just amazing that there's nothing like it and covering Le Mans is the most sort of mentally and physically battering event you can do as a motorsport journalist. And then by the time you're halfway home to Calais at the end of the sort of Sunday night, Monday morning, you're sort of like, I might do this again next year. So yeah, that was uh, 2016 Le Mans. That was awesome. Did you get to take any breaks throughout that day like the drivers do? Or did you have to be awake for 24 hours? And then, then no, we did, uh, we did a little bit of shift work where you sort of disappear for like three or four hours sleep during the night or something like that but yeah it's very very limited you're you're awake you're you are awake nearly the entire time i think you maybe get like two and a half three hours sleep if you're lucky i can imagine there's some sort of anxiety that probably goes uh, around when you're sort of off shift having a bit of a break thinking oh god what if something game changing happens whilst i'm on my break and i'm not there to see it or cover it yeah when you wake up i think that's the bit like when you're when you're finishing you're just like i just want to get back to the house and sleep but then as soon as you wake up you're like checking the updates to see what you've missed. And if you have missed something, you're just in a rush to get back to the circuit and then debrief with someone and be like, what happened here? Or, uh, you know, some whatever you're, you're never more interested in like hour 17 Le Mans hour by hour reports as you are when you've woken up after the, after sleeping through the graveyard shift and you're trying to work out what's happened. <laughs> that's brilliant um okay well look that i mean that was fantastic scott and i uh, really appreciate you sort of opening up and immersing us in the world of f1 journalism there's a lot of lot that probably most of us probably wouldn't appreciate and how difficult that can be sometimes and i really appreciate you being so open and honest about all that let's talk about f1 f1 2022 to be specific what have you made of it so far um have you enjo enjoyed it uh you, you can talk to me as a fan if you like or as a journalist whichever you prefer um yeah it's been it's been it's been very good um i was very interested to see how the new rules uh shapes up um i think they have worked slightly better than i thought in terms of or maybe not slightly better but just about as well as i thought or hoped they could in terms of the cars being able to follow closely and uh just lend itself to better racing so that's been really good but it's just been awesome to have Ferrari back in the mix. It's been amazing to have the quality of fights, especially that we had in Bahrain and Saudi Arabia between uh, Max and Charles. 
because they're two just absolutely phenomenal drivers. Um, the only thing that's missing is obviously having Merck in the mix, not because not because I think it's not good enough with Max and Charles. If this is the fight until the end of the season, absolutely bring it on. It could be as good value as it was last year. Um, it's just purely because the more drivers and teams you have involved, the better. And how amazing would it be if you had Hamilton, Russell, Leclerc and Verstappen all fighting and, and not just fighting for the championship, but on any given weekend, Carlos Sainz is absolutely good enough to be in that mix. And Sergio Perez on his best weekends is also a, a contender as well. So it would just be incredible to have six six cars fighting for the win. Um especially with how fierce the midfield fight is behind it. Then you just have this ridiculous multi-team fight the whole way through. But I, I can't be too greedy because the way we've seen Ferrari and Red Bull fight the first four races of the season has been uh, has been pretty special. 2022 had a lot to live up to because last year was so good, but it's, it started pretty strongly, to be fair. Yeah, there was a lot of emphasis on these new cars. There was a lot of build-up and suspense. And I remember... Uh, before the first race of the season began and we saw the picture of testing where none of us really knew to a degree who was definitely going to be the fastest, although we had a rough idea who was in the ballpark. And it, it did certainly deliver, or at least um, at the level of what, what was required in terms of making the racing a bit more exciting, the, the cars sort of following each other. Uh, whether that continues over the course of the season remains to be seen. And of course, DRS does have a big part to play in that. We, we saw in Imola that... I think some people were a little bit disappointed with the delay in action in DRS. I think it was like, some people were saying it was like 10, 15 laps a bit later than they were expecting. I know certain conditions of the circuit did lend itself to be a bit more difficult, especially after what happened last year with Bottas and Russell, probably at the forefront of that. But um, I mean, I, I would say that for now, I'm quite happy with where things are in terms of our reliance on DRS, because I feel like it's something that, we can't quite get rid of yet and we saw this in Imola and it could be track specific as well but there is a way perhaps at some circuits we could probably nerf it a little bit to make it a bit better just to deliver on what DRS was intended to do in the first place. Well I've never understood why they don't vary the DRS zones and the lengths and stuff uh, more than they do at the moment. I, I can't remember uh, apart from really minor changes like bringing it forward 10 metres and that's really rare. I don't really see much evidence of them playing with the lengths of the zones which is silly because some circuits drs is just massively overpowered and then some circuits it's just not powerful enough so you the, the whole point of drs of the drs is to get it so that a driver can challenge into the next braking zone it's not meant to be a drive-by passing aid and there are some places where that works really really well and there are other places where it's just like two thirds of the way down the straight. If that the driver behind is already now the driver in front. I think what um, what Max Verstappen had in Imola in the sprint race was exactly what the DRS is meant to achieve, where he was then able to contest that braking zone into Tamburello and he got passed on the outside. That is what DRS is meant to achieve. So I think, unfortunately, it is still a bit of a sticking plaster that F1 has to rely on because the, the following is just a bit too difficult. But if they can get it right, there's no reason why it can't be a good overtaking tool and work. I just think they need to show a bit of flexibility with how they actually use it in practice. That always seems to be the hard thing for me because I totally agree with you. I think there should be some places where they do vary where the DRS starts and where it, obviously not where it finishes, but where it starts in particular to sort of make it a bit more consistent because, I mean, Saudi 
uh, in Jeddah, it was a, it was a prime example where you had Charles and Max fighting to not be first to the final corner because they obviously wanted that DRS into turn one. Whereas at, at Imola, at Tamburello, it was never a guarantee that you were going to make that overtake. I mean, we saw Charles trying to get past Perez before he had his spin and he just couldn't get it done because of the straight line speed of the red ball. And I think that kind of is where my next question would be on that one, Scott. It, is it possible for uh, F1 to try and have a DRS zone or FIA to have a DRS zone at every single circuit that is at the right length to try and achieve what the aim of DRS is because some cars obviously with different characteristics like the Red Bull on their own even without DRS they're almost impossible to pass in a straight line unless you've got a long enough DRS zone whereas other cars it's a lot more straightforward yeah that's the thing that there will never be a one-size-fits-all solution so what works for some cars won't work for for other cars just look at what the mercedes needs at the moment because it is, does seem to be producing more drag than pretty much any car on 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 the grid that it's nothing it's got nothing in a in a straight line really struggles even with drs to even pass a drsless aston martin um at the moment so you're never going to have a one size fits all but in that situation you just have to play the percentages and if you find a balance that seems to work for the majority of the field go with that I mean, ultimately, you're probably always going to have one or two teams that benefit more or benefit less, but it's never been about sort of trying to find... You're never going to have a solution that works for everybody, so you just got to try and find the thing that works best for the balance of the grid. Yeah, very much so. Um, on the subject of Ferrari, there's a lot of pressure on them this year to... Um, after the last few years, obviously that has been building up to 2022 where we've had full storms, we've had early cars that have shown promise but have ultimately failed to deliver either through uh, poor development compared to their rivals or through drivers making mistakes and throwing away big points. Um, so far it started off pretty good for them after the first few races but obviously Imola we saw the first major error for Charles Leclerc 2.0 if you like which some people that have watched him in the past would obviously say, yes, he's incredible talent, but he's always had a mistake in him sometimes when he pushes a bit too far more than he should do. Um, can he sustain that over the course of the season? I suppose the question I want to ask you, Scott, is what are your thoughts on Ferrari in 2022? Do you feel that this could be the year that they could sustain that championship challenge and may go on to win it? I think we'll probably get the first answers to that in the next couple of races when we see what their first real update is to the car because the big question mark over them is the development capacity this isn't the first time they've started a season strongly and won early races in Leclerc they do have a driver who's absolutely capable of of, of leading a, a title challenge but he does have the uh he's he's not error prone in the sense that he makes a lot of the same mistakes but he's error prone in that he always he, he just has a very good knack of finding new mistakes to make um he's He's just a guy who sits on the limit, basically, and he's just he, that's just the way he drives. And while he's done a very good job of improving that and cutting out any repeat errors or silly errors, that, that he does still have the odd the odd one in him when he just sort of pushes too hard. And he knows he needs to try and control that a little bit better. Um, but it just comes down to how good the car is. It, it's got, clearly got a very good base, but Ferrari also, the early version of their car was also probably a lot more evolved than anyone else because they had more time and resource to spend on it. They started early last year because they finished sixth in the Constructors' Championship in 2020. They had more aerodynamic testing restriction time last year than for, uh, Red Bull and Mercedes. They had more wind tunnel time. They had more CFD work they were allowed to do. So it's very possible that they started the year with a car that was you know, X percentage further developed. 
So then the question is, right, okay, well, where are you on that development slope? Do you still have a lot more pace to find from this car? Or are you petering out at a point where Red Bull is going up quite steeply still in terms of the potential of its package? That's the big unknown. If if there is still a decent amount of potential in that package, then I do think Ferrari can go the distance. Whether that means they actually do win the championships, don't know. But I think they might be able to fight Red Bull pretty much the entire season. I certainly hope so. And for me, I think what's been what will be key when we go to Miami and obviously the next few races, when those updates will probably come, the significant ones at least, is how Ferrari deal with pressure after, or some scrutiny, if you like, after having a disappointing weekend, which is what they did. I mean, overall, I thought they weren't, bad in terms of where the car was in terms of performance if anything they're probably on par with Red Bull it just circumstantially just didn't work out for them one way or another and Red Bull had the perfect weekend and and we know that Red Bull over the last few years have proven their credentials in terms of a development they've been able to keep pace with the lead car uh, particularly last season up to a point and Max Verstappen's consistency when he does finish races is is unparalleled I think I saw a, a stat the other day that I think in the last 40 races in which he finished 38 of them were on the podium except and the exceptions were a, a sixth place I think um j- just didn't go out work out from that ninth place in Hungary where he was t-boned by Bottas into turn one and he was driving practically half a car from an aero perspective so with all that said how do you expect Ferrari to deal with this added pressure and scrutiny against a team that have a very solid base to win championships now and a driver that already has one behind him and that can only serve to imp- help his consistency and mental stability in those moments even more well it's obviously it's obviously a big challenge um it's about as big a challenge as ferrari could could have up uh, obviously up, maybe up against a full fully fit mercedes would be slightly harder just with the weight of their recent run of successes but red bull's on a high it knows how to win championships um, it does have a, a, an amazing driver in Max Verstappen leading the way. It also has the benefit of having a pretty clear number one, number two driver set up there. Um, it's got an ominous uh, design team um, led by Adrian Newey. So it's a very, very intimidating foe um, and one that's going to be pretty relentless as as well. We know what Red Bull's capacity to develop over the course of a season is. So, Ferrari, Ferrari will need to be on its A game if it's going to have any chance of winning the championships this year. But it's at least given itself the best possible foundation to do that. It's, I think the, the F175 is a pretty sweet car. But again, it just comes down to capacity. They've improved on organisational and procedural, th- procedural things like strategic choices and pit stops and that kind of stuff. Everything in the periphery is sort of coming together at Ferrari. They just, they just need to prove that that design team is still exact. It is exactly what it needs to be. And that's the big question mark. Yeah, very much so. And I think it's one of those uh, sort of situations where how they will react to that increase in pressure from Red Bull, because I think after Melbourne, we got a great indication that Ferrari looked the team to beat, And then you flip it all of a sudden, a few weeks later at Imola, where Red Bull have all the ingredients that they need to win this world championship um, and beyond that, you know, they've got Max who's, you know, doing a great job uh, from last year. And, and despite the disappointments with reliability that he's had already, he's been able to shrug that off and just carry on. Um, and we saw arguably his best performance for some time or the last few weeks or so. And they've got a solid number two in Perez who has grown exponentially in terms of the estimations at his own team. And for some people, perhaps as well, who felt that he was never going to live up to that task of being a number, a solid number two at Red Bull. So, for me, it's quite 
as, as a Ferrari fan, I am hopeful. Um, but at the same time, I kind of look at it as Ferrari can't afford to have too many more weekends like what they had at Imola, where Sainz just, was just unlucky with that mistake and obviously affected him in the race with that incident with Ricardo. And then you get to a position where Ferrari are pushing to their max. There's always that moment where there might be an error or they might not be able to live up to Red Bull standard. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I think the the pressure side of thing will will be an interesting one to watch. Um, they 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 are an organisation that has as team and driver made mistakes in 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 recent years. They've been prone to those. They've been extremely costly. They've thrown away a lot of points in the last couple of Grand Prix for no reason um, or for very very weak reasons. Um, which has let Red Bull off the hook slightly. They needed to, I think, to punish Red Bull quite a bit early on um, while Red Bull was having reliability problems. So, yeah, that that's, that's like I say, obviously the development is the big question mark. There are some other stuff. There is some other stuff, sorry, in the background as well. But they, they, did, they are just a sharper outfit overall now than they were a couple of years ago. I think they used that two-year period where they were struggling a little bit to really get the house in order. Doesn't mean that they're perfect, but Red Bull's not perfect either. Max Verstappen still makes mistakes from time to time. Perez is, you know, Perez was lucky at Imola ultimately that, that it was a sprint race weekend because if it hadn't been, then he'd have been qualifying further down and he would have only barely made it back onto the podium, I think, in, in the Grand Prix. So there's still capacity for both sides to slip up, but that's what makes it such a good title fight because it's ultimately the same as last year. You have two very, very, very good, not perfect organisations led by two very, very good, but not perfect drivers. And that's quite a fun mix. Yeah, very much so. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of that and how that develops over the course of the season. Um, probably just going to ask the probing question on this one regarding Charles and Max. Um, so far, when they've sort of come together and locked horns, they've been keeping it rather clean, although aggressive, but, you know, uh, clean nonetheless. I don't want to be uh, that guy, but do you think that that will continue for the course season? Because we saw this um, when Lewis and Max were fighting last year, that there was a bit of give... From mostly from Lewis at the time, but then obviously uh, that catalyst moment at Silverstone sent the championship in a di- different direction between those two. Do you, do you think that there's a risk that this could happen between Charles and Max? Yeah, I think it could go, if not exactly the same way, but a pretty similar way to what happened with Hamilton and Verstappen last year, because that started off very respectful between them, hard but broadly fair. There did seem to be a little bit more sort of needle, but I think that was because Red Bull were chasing to to depose uh, Mercedes and Hamilton. So it was a little bit different there. It was like, you know, it was the aspiring uh, contender versus the established champions. They really wanted to knock them off their pedestal. And then it obviously got a little bit heated between them as well. Uh, but it's at Red Bull and Ferrari, <clears throat> sorry, Red Bull and Ferrari are absolutely capable of, of going that way because they're both intensely political organisations and Leclerc and Verstappen are very, very hot-blooded drivers. So I, I see, I'd love for it to stay clean i'd love for it to stay hard but fair but i was saying this stuff 12 months ago and i knew and i said 12 months ago verstappen and hamilton will not keep avoiding each other the entire season and that's and obviously eventually they came to blows spectacularly i really hope it doesn't go that way with leclerc and verstappen but i think there's every possibility that they will eventually at some point hit each other yeah and there's always that famous video that's been doing the rounds on the internet from when uh, Charles and Max had a clash at karting and I think it kind of gave the wrong impression that they didn't have as good a relationship as they actually do 
So I hope for their sake that that continues, that they can keep fighting as aggressively and fair as possible, but as long as it stays fair. I don't think we want to get to a situation where we have a Hamilton... Uh, Verstappen moment at Silverstone and then every time they come together after that you almost feel like contact is going to be inevitable and how is it going to sour even more and more because that did take some of the fun out of it as, as exciting as it was it wasn't I don't want to say uncomfortable because there's a there is a level there but it did feel a little bit awkward thinking oh great what's the reaction going to be on the socials following uh, this incident and there's no, and there's almost no way that you can win when you're a reporter or you're doing a podcast on it for example yeah, no, exactly. But ultimately, like it's still uh, so far. So far this year, there's not really been anything that sort of flared up as a massive controversy on track. So it's at least it's been a little bit more easy to to enjoy the start of the 2022 season. Whereas, yeah, by the end of last year, I just wanted it to end. Oh yeah, yeah, we all did. <laughs> Believe me. But um, yeah, on the subject of Mercedes, nice little segue into that one. Um, it's been a bit of a surprise to see them so far down uh, compared to the lead car. They've never really been this far off them since the beginning of the turbo hybrid era. And naturally, I think a lot of people associated with Mercedes have obviously been urging caution to their fan base not to expect us to rise to the top of the field anytime soon. It will take time. They have to be more methodical, especially in a cost cap era like what we see now. They can't just chuck 300 million pounds at this and or dollars and expect it to be solved overnight. Um, what are your thoughts on Mercedes um, going into the season? Uh, first of all, are you surprised that they're this far off at this point? And how confident are you that they can get to a point this season that they can end up with a car that can compete for race wins and world championships um well yeah obviously massively surprised that mercedes have dropped the ball i remember at barcelona in the um in the media center in the press conference room um lewis hamilton was asked um you know are you not are you not worried that uh, because of the big new rule change maybe mercedes has got it wrong and Lewis just looked incredulous and just sort of said, why would I think that? Like, my team doesn't make mistakes. And I remember at the time thinking, if they have, you, this is going to come back and bite you in the backside because it's kind of, it's quite an arrogant response. Uh, and uh, it's it's not arrogant in that, you know, Lewis is being, Lewis is being unreasonable or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's that bullish kind of, I stand by my team kind of arrogance, which I think is fine. It's sort of that confidence, arrogance border that can get a bit blurred sometimes. Um, but I remember thinking, oh, if that car isn't absolute king, then this is going to be held over you at some point. But it was funny because at Imola, Lewis brought that exchange up himself and said, uh, you know, I, I was asked this at, at testing and I said, we don't make mistakes. But he basically said, I think in hindsight, I have to admit that we might have. You know, they might have got this this concept wrong. Um, I knew it would be a challenge for them to match Ferrari at the start of the season because like I said earlier, Ferrari had this extra resource time. Mercedes had less of that. They had a title challenge to go the distance with last year. And even though that they stopped developing the 2021 car reasonably early, they still took it further than Ferrari. And they still had a massive focus on the 2021 car. They were, they, they were constantly having to you know, improve things, get the absolute most out of it right to the end of the season. So with that in mind, it was always going to be a tall order, but I expected them to really do what Rebel have done, which is maybe be sort of second best at the start, but be nipping at their heels and then be in a position to really strike back. I didn't expect to be in this position after four races where it sounds like Mercedes still doesn't actually know what their problem is. I mean, they know broadly what it is, but they don't know what's caused it. And if you don't know what's caused the problem, you've got no idea how to rectify it. So 
it's such an odd situation to see them in after this prolonged run of dominance through the V6 Turbo hybrid era. But the idea was always like, surely at some point it has to come to an end. And I, it looks like it is going to this year. I, I I still think that if Mercedes is absolutely adamant that its concept can be saved, I'm sure it can be. And it might well be, end up being a situation like the 2009 McLaren, which then I think Lewis ended up like claiming some poles and a couple of wins in the second half of the season. It might well be that. But as we saw in 2009, that came far too late for Lewis to be a title contender. So I wouldn't be surprised if Mercedes wins races this year, but I'd be absolutely stunned if they are drivers or constructors champion but by the end of the season. And this is the thing, because, you know, I've been watching F1 long enough to see other eras of dominance come to an end. And it's usually the same thing. And, and what they all had in common is that it never really, they never really went back to the front straight away. You know, Ferrari struck after 2005, all right, it took them a year to have a car that can compete for it, Red Bull themselves. But like you said, Mercedes have to figure out what's wrong with their car. And even then they have to come up with this, they have to discover whether or not the current concept they've got is going to be good enough. And they can't just throw it away because they've invested loads of money and time and they're, they're going to be even further behind if they just say, oh, well, let's just rip this up and start from scratch because everyone else has gone down the right route, assuming that that is the right route and they have to start from scratch and try and catch them there. So I totally understand that. And I think if I was a Mercedes fan, I would just urge them to be a little bit patient. I'm sure they'll come good eventually, but I don't think it's going to be as soon as some people make them out to be just through recency bias of them being so successful. No, I completely agree. Um, I think it will... I think it will take a little bit longer. Um, I think there is a suggestion that they might have some new parts on for Miami that don't solve the problem entirely. It's they're not going to unlock like a second's worth of pace or anything like that. But I think it might give them a clue that they're heading in the right direction in terms of understanding it. And if that's the case, then that obviously means they can press the button on anything else they've got in the works to try and rectify this. So we might be three or four races from them really really getting a handle on it we might be three or four months from them having you know a, a major step that's the thing at the moment it's still an uncertainty it's not like they've it's not like they've gone okay we're deficient here and here but we're strong here so we're going to try and improve that but mainly we need to fix these two problems and then we'll be fine and this is how we're going to do them we're going to design this part and this part or take this weight off or whatever blah 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 they're not in that position at the moment. This is such an unusual problem for them to be facing. And it's not the same as like in previous years, if you've got a bit of entry understeer or it's light on traction or the PU derivability is bad or something like that. Conventional problems with conventional solutions. This is a problem that they've not faced before. They're trying to work out what's causing it. And it's just a bit of an alien situation for them to be in all round. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I hope they return to the front uh, sooner rather than later, because obviously we want to see Hamilton and George Russell who's had a stellar season so far um, for Mercedes back in that championship fight where they belong. But, you know, all good things come to those that wait, I suppose. We'll have to wait and see how that goes. Um, Scott, I know you've got to leave us very, very soon because uh, you're a busy man. Um, just before we sign off, as much as I've loved talking F1 with you, um, where can our followers find you on social media and uh, if, if you want to send them in your direction or if you want to send them in direction of the race, if that's a better avenue? Uh, yeah, well, um, obviously, uh, if anyone has ever listened to the Race F1 podcast, then you know you just need to go to uh, therace.com and as Ed Straw often points out, you're not allowed to forget the hyphen. Um, yes. <laughs> and that is where all of our stuff is. Uh, that's on uh, written stuff on therace.com. Don't forget the hyphen. Uh, videos on YouTube, podcasts as well on 
podcast platform of choice. And yeah, um, if anyone what does want to look me up, I'm uh, at, at smitchellf1 on, on Twitter. And like I said earlier, my DMs are open. So if people do have any um, you know questions about the job or sort of that people there are people listening to this that want some career advice or anything like that, my door is always open. I just can't promise I'll be re- very, very good um, at replying, as I think uh, you found out when we were trying to arrange this call. <laughs> yeah, but do you know what? It's been absolutely worth it, Scott. And, and it's been a pleasure talking to you. And, and as a fan and also, you know, as a podcast, I really, really appreciate you giving up your time to come and talk to me uh, about your history in, in motorsport and obviously your inspiration as being a journalist. And uh, yeah, it, it, it's been absolutely great. It's, I, could, I could do this all night, but... Uh, <laughs> You and I have obviously got other things to do. But in the meantime, guys, um, all all that aside, if you have enjoyed this episode, please do consider liking the video if you're watching us on YouTube and subscribing to the channel. We'd really, really appreciate that. We're very close to 600. So, of course, we need to be uh, rising as fast as we can. And you guys can help us with that and get more grace on, uh, great uh, guests on, I should say, like Scott. And uh, if you enjoyed this on your favourite podcasting platform, you know what to do. Give us a like, follow us on there. And if you think we're worthy of a five-star review, please do give us one and we will reward you by reading uh, your review and giving you a shout out on the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. But until next time, guys, I've been Adam Burns, your host. Please stay safe, please stay well, and we'll see you on the next episode of the DNF1 F1 podcast. Take care. Podcast Network.